Bench Racing Radio. Bench Racing Radio. The podcast with your hosts, Eric Gio and Anthony Leake. Good day. How's it going, buddy? It's going good, Eric. What's uh what's new in sunny old Kenora? Um nothing. Yeah, just same old are you guys still in lockdown or no? No, no, we've been out uh just about two days from the time of this original recording. Okay. And uh, you know, we've we've I guess really for any of us, it's like it's February. I mean, COVID or not, I mean February's a pretty quiet month. Of course, we didn't have the uh, enduro that was planned for the month of February because of the lockdown. Uh, there's a lot of disappointment out there, and and you know it's funny we haven't really. I mean, we delayed our season last year in the spring because of COVID, um, but we still ran the same amount of races as the year before. So there wasn't really a big adjustment for people other than, of course, no no fans last summer. So I would probably say the Enduro is the first real event that we've been forced to cancel due to COVID. Like we did cancel events in like what would have been in June last year, but we just replaced them with practices. So it's not like it didn't feel essentially different in 2020 from a racetrack perspective last year. So unfortunately mm. the Enduro, which I thought, you know, was going to have some huge numbers. I think we would have probably capped out on our Enduro sleds at 20 or 25, depending on what we decided to do. Uh, and I think we would have gone from the 11 twins that we had last year to probably close to 20. So that, that bodes well for getting more sleds in the future. And I know a lot of people are super excited about it. Um, and I'm hoping that in February of 2022, we'll be able to get at it, but yeah. Yeah, that's tough. Uh, yeah, we're, we're recording this one here on February 18th, which is, uh, 20 years to the day of, uh, the passing of Dale Earnhardt, such a, a dark day for the sport, but what, a what an era of change that brought in. Hey. Yeah. You know, I used to watch Dale Earnhardt quite a bit on ABC when he was at Daytona missed both uh dale earnhardt's daytona 500 win which was like the highest elation you could get to for for dale earnhardt and i think for the sport and then the three years later in his untimely uh, death on the last lap of the daytona 500 in 2001 uh, i also missed that race and uh didn't hear about it until you know the next day essentially um, or much later that night, I can't, I can't remember, but of course, you know, access to the internet in 2001 was a lot different than today. So if you didn't have like the U S channels or, uh, you know, it wasn't the six o'clock news on CBC, then you probably didn't hear about it until, you know, the newspapers or, or something like that. So, uh, I didn't actually see the video of what happened until several years later too. And I know that, uh, you know, it shook the whole the, the world when it came to racing and i think even for people who are casual uh watchers of it would have known the name dale earnhardt and so yeah it was very very dark day yeah definitely but it uh you know i think it took a giant of the sport uh, falling like that to to make people recognize that it, it really was a real risk and it could happen to anybody you know and that you know before it was always you know there were three drivers killed the year before i think but they weren't big names. So, you know, it's just like back in the 60s, guys would write this off as, well, I mean, that guy wasn't very good, you know. <laughs> Maybe he died because he wasn't good is kind of the way they equated it, which is just so totally wrong. But, right. you know, I think it took that, you know, the best of the best to make people realize that this was serious and that it anybody could, it could happen to anyone, anytime. And it just ushered in a whole area of, you know, Bringing in the the Hans device, bringing in safer barriers, making the cars way safer, making the cars designed to bend. You can replace a chassis. You can't replace a driver because you build the chassis so stiff. The only give in the whole car is the guy in the seat. You know, mm-hmm. they uh, they did a lot to make it uh, a whole lot safer since then. And you know what? That was you're right. There was there was a variety of of different uh, racing. Uh, incidences that resulted in death um i think it was at kyle petty's son uh was killed in new hampshire when the yeah, when the gas pedal got stuck and he and, and hit the wall at i don't know how many miles an hour 
Um, and then there was a few others that I can't remember offhand, but I'm, I'm sure I remember the clips, but you know, it's so funny because not funny in a ha ha way, but in, in just how, how it took like, like Earnhardt, like culminated all these other things that, that for the most part was ignored. And I wouldn't say completely ignored because I know on the Adam Petty deal, there was uh they put in the, the, the emergency shutoff switch, uh, after, mm-hmm. um, after that incident, when the throttle got stuck. Um, so there were little things, but yeah, you're right. There were huge things that happened that were like things that were optional before that became mandatory, like the Hans device, like even the full face helmets, it was still for the most part open yeah. up until then. And then all the safety in the cars. Um, and then it wasn't until maybe what? three years later when the safer barriers came in because there was all this discussion about making the car safer and then someone came i don't remember who it was or what companies came up with the idea of like well why don't we make the track safer too you know these cars are going 200 miles an hour could Mm -hmm. you imagine if you can build a wall that's going to you know absorb so much of that uh, impact and so i think the sport's been I mean, you look at that rollover, Michael McDowell from Texas 10 years ago and how he hit that wall and rolled over and for him to get out and walk showed how much in the seven years prior to that, seven to 10 years prior to that, how much NASCAR improved the safety. So much so that someone like Michael McDowell could win the Daytona 500 this year. Yeah. Yeah. He's still walking and uh, he got her done. That was pretty, pretty awesome to see. Yeah. No, it's, uh, it's it's pretty crazy how much that changed. And, you know, I saw somebody say something last week about how, you know, he, he was an all time great to the sport and uh, that was a tremendous legacy, but the way that he went out, the safety wave that that brought in was probably a larger legacy because that's something that's trickled down to mm-hmm. every level of the sport. Yeah. You know, who knows how many lives that event saved. Uh, unfortunately, you know, it's uh it's a crazy time, but yeah, uh, yeah. salute to the Intimidator, man. He was the best. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, we got a pretty fun interview on tap this week. You ready to get into it? Always. Right on. Our next guest is a 20-plus year veteran of the sport, and this guy has done pretty much everything under the sun, from being an event promoter, track promoter, announcer, race director, flagman, writer, and eventually got involved in marketing in some capacity. Welcome to the podcast, Mr. Chris Steppen. How's it going, Chris? I'm doing good. How you doing? Oh, living the dream. Kind of wishing I was down in New Mexico. <laughs> <laughs> right. How's uh, how's things down there? Uh, things are good. Things are good. There was a, kind of a freak snowstorm here in the last couple of days, but it's sort of back to normal now, so things are good. Right on, yeah. Leave it on the uh, Minnesotan to bring snow with them down to Mexico. Man, they've they've uh, yelled at me a couple times for bringing cold weather down here in the last year. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's wild. Well, we'll wind up. We'll eventually touch on uh, on how you wound up down there, but uh, let's kind of get started back at uh, at the start. How did you how did you get involved in the sport and uh, and tell us a bit about how you uh, how you did that. Yeah, you know, it's kind of a, a interesting or kind of weird, in my opinion, story. I, as a kid, I went to the races at Cedar Lake, lived about 20, 25 minutes away, went there randomly on Saturday nights, Did, was not a diehard, was not a regular, but when we could, you know, went to the races there on a Saturday night. And then probably when I was in middle school, um, my aunt and uncle bought a race car, a driver who had raced for a lot of years, Kevin Vbrock, was in a modified for a long time. And they bought his modified and and he raced for them for a couple of years. So I got a little bit more involved, you know, kind of hanging around in the pits and Kevin had a couple of kids, my age and my aunt and uncle have a couple of kids, my age. So we all kind of just hung out and grew up together uh, in the pits and at the racetrack. And then I think I was a junior in high school, maybe somewhere around in there, sophomore, junior in high school and Cedar Lakes announcer was moving to Georgia, got a new job and, and had to quit. And someone, and I don't know if it was my mom, I can't remember my mom or my aunt or somebody read it in the newspaper of all things that, that Cedar Lake was looking for an announcer and called me and like, man, you have to do it. You have to do it. And, um, I was like, no chance. Like I am not a public speaker. I do not like that. That is, you know, in high school, anytime I had to give a speech in front of 20 people, I stood up there and just shook like a leaf, like just not my thing at all. And so I was like, nope, 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 nope. 
Well, I must've been a senior in high school. Cause then I went to college and in the fall of my freshman year, I think it was the owners of Cedar Lake called and said, Hey, we're hearing that you might be interested. I'm like, man, no, <laughs> no, I'm not. <laughs> but, um, they ended up talking me into coming opening weekend. And I had another gentleman who announced with me that weekend and, uh, it was a two day weekend, went fine. Wasn't really for me. I didn't love it and told him I didn't want to do it anymore. You know, I tried it just wasn't for me. And, uh, two or three days later, Tuesday or Wednesday that week, they called me back and they're like, man, the other guy can't come. We really need you one more week. I'm like, okay. Well, then I announced that next Saturday night by myself. And I don't know if it was just the fact that I was by myself or what, but I was hooked and 24 years later, here we go, you know? <laughs> so, Oh, wow. That's wild. So what, yeah. how did they, why did they think you would be such a good fit for that? Like, did they see that you were getting to be a diehard fan or? You know, I'm not really, really sure. I had started working for, or writing a weekly column in all the dirt the year before. And so I think they knew that I was, I was getting involved and, and I kind of knew my stuff. You know, a lot of times when, when the announcer, who was a great announcer, I'm still friends with him today, but when he happened to not know a driver's name or where they were from, our family's booth was right next to the announcer's tower. So I would just run up the stairs and tell them. <laughs> I just happened to know most of those guys. And, and you know, from being in the pits and being friends with some of them people, I just happened to know. So I think the word maybe got out that, that I might be, you know, somebody who's worth giving a shot to, I guess. <laughs> Well, wow, that's crazy. So, so announcing at, uh, at Cedar Lake, and I mean, that's a pretty good track to start out at. It's not some little, uh, you know, county fairgrounds right. that runs three shows a year. Right. I that's, mean, uh, it's pretty daunting thrown into the fire, right? That was, that was the crazy thing is I was, a, I can't remember if I was 18 or 17, I was right around in the, you know, first year of college time. So, you know, I was a kid and I was one of those who wanted to go party with my friends and go do all these things. And all of a sudden, I was the voice of one of the most prestigious racetracks in the country, you know? So <laughs> it, uh, it was, you're like you said, a little daunting, but obviously it was a, a fantastic start for me. And, and I'm glad I, I took the leap. That's cool. So how many years did you do that at Cedar Lake? Well, so weekly for 21 every week and then 2019, let's see, 2018, 2019, I announced USMTS touring series weekly. So I would only work the Cedar Lake races that didn't conflict with USMTS. And then last year I did, I think I did three weekends at Cedar Lake, just the masters, the nationals and, uh, the legendary 100. They ended up going into last year. They hired someone, uh, Kale Anderson, who's a young, young guy who's just in college right now. He's from new Richmond. They hired him to be their regular announcer um, this past year. And he'll continue to do that this coming year. And I'll work, Again, probably just those three shows, the Masters, the Nationals, and the 100. Cool, cool. So you're, uh, so you're involved at that track, and then you, you eventually got involved at a whole bunch of other tracks in the area. Tell us a bit about your involvement there. Yeah, you know, once I started announcing at Cedar Lake, um, you know, some different people, you know, called or, or got a hold of me and asked if I'd fill in here and there at some different places. And, and it wasn't very long. In fact, Cedar Lake, my first year at Cedar Lake was 1998. And in 1999, I got hired to announce some World of Outlaw late model races in Florida in February, like six months after I'd started at Cedar Lake, I'm, I'm in Florida, which was really cool. But, um, you know, from there, there some local tracks, uh, Superior needed announcer, uh, Arcadia, which was a few years down the road from that, wanted an announcer, St. Croix Falls, which is right next to Cedar Lake, wanted an announcer, uh, I did some stuff at Madison, Minnesota, Wilmer, Minnesota, Casson, Minnesota, trying to think of there was any others in the area. And so at, at some points I was announcing, you know, four nights a week, I was announcing it at Wilmer on Thursdays, Superior on Fridays, Cedar Lake on Saturdays. And then depending if Madison or, or whoever it was, maybe raced on Sunday. So kept me plenty busy. Yeah, no doubt. I've, uh, I've done a little bit of the racing four nights a week and <laughs> right. that wears a guy out. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, you listed off a whole bunch of things there and uh, just before we started, uh, I'm just going to touch on some of these other ones and just kind of tell me how, how in the world you got started with these things. So, uh, doing the whole, uh, there was announcing, but then there was also uh race director 
And Flagman, how did that come yeah. about? Well, Flagman's a funny story. Um, Sarah Isdall, who lives in Wilmer, lived in Wilmer at the time, she works all of my FYE events, and she does a lot of work with me for, for my events throughout the summer. Well, back then, she was on the board at the track in Wilmer, and her and I happened to be talking at one point in, I don't know if it was March or April, one spring, and she, she asked me, man, do you know anybody who would like to be a flagman? Ours is not able to come back or moved or whatever the situation was. And I said, you know what? I'll do it. It's something I'd never done. And, and the truth was it, it's a, it's a Thursday night track. So it wasn't conflicting with anything else I had going on. I'm like, you know what? I'll give that a shot. I've never done it. That might be fun. And so I forget what year that was. That was probably you know, six, seven years ago now, I guess. And I did it. I did it for t- three years at Wilmer, actually. And then the third year I did it at Wilmer, I also did it at Superior because their flagman had uh, had retired or moved on or whatever. So I ended up going from announcing four nights a week to announcing two nights a week and flagging two nights a week for a couple of years. And then and then the race director part kind of came naturally because, you know, there, there was no such thing as a race director for a lot of years. Right. I mean, you, you all know that being, mm-hmm. being in the sport, that's a relatively you know, within the last 10 years, I guess, kind of a position. Well, from all my FYE events, I was running those events anyway, right? Like I was the race director for my own events just because, you know, my name was attached to it. I wanted to be the guy to make the final call in case it was wrong. Then I'm the one who had to take the blame anyway, right? So mm-hmm. becoming a race director was pretty natural. I ended up doing that at uh, at Superior and, and Granite City and, of course, my events and and then that snowballed into me being the race director at all of the Florida stuff, which I continue to do. I just came home, as you know, two days ago from Florida and uh, I race direct about you know eight or 10 shows down there in the month of February too. So cool. Cool. So I'm just trying to map this all out here. Like how many miles, how many vehicles did you go through during this time frame? You're going from Wilmer up to Superior, back down to Cedar Lake and like, that's a lot of miles. Man. Well, and, and remember some of those years I was in college, which was in Duluth, uh, Duluth, Minnesota. I went to UMD and then I was in grad school, which was in university of Wisconsin lacrosse. Well, when I was in grad school for those two years, that is nowhere near any of the tracks I ever worked at. So there was a ton of cross country driving there for, for a few of those years. But once I took my first full-time job in St. Cloud at, at the university, that was really centrally located to most of those places. So it actually worked out really well. Yeah. I'm sure that, uh, that made things a little bit better, but <laughs> wild. So, uh, so tell us a bit about, uh, FYE Motorsports. Like when did that get started and, uh, and you know, how, how that's grown to what it is today. Yeah. That that's another kind of crazy story. Nothing I would have ever expected. And, and to me, this is one of the coolest stories, at least, you know, personally, because, uh, FYE started technically in 2003, but the idea behind it started in August of 2002. And basically I was the director of the Wissota late model challenge series from 99 to 2000. And I don't even know, four or five, first five, six years, that thing was in existence. I ran it. And the crazy thing, how this all kind of circles back together, John Seitz of all people and I were standing in the pits at a challenge series race in Rice Lake, Wisconsin in August of 2002, just talking about life BS and like we always did. And he said, you know, you need to run your own event. Like you're pretty good at this. This is something you might want to do. And I was like, where would you even start? You know, how do you even do that? And, and literally that day in the pit area at Rice Lake, I sent Phil Merton, who was the president of Viking Speedway at that time, a text message and said, Hey, what are your thoughts about me renting your racetrack and having an event in October? Because Viking ended Labor Day weekend, which they still do. You know, Labor Day weekend is kind of their cutoff for their season. Mm -hmm. And he called me immediately. He's like, are you crazy? You know, what are you thinking? And, and I said, well, I don't know, you know, me and John are standing here talking and, and it's kind of a, kind of something I might want to do. And Phil was like, I am all in, let me see what the board thinks. And within three or four days, the fall classic was born <laughs> and then, uh, and, and it just, it went crazy. And, and since then, obviously it's been, uh, it's been very, very good to me you know, the mod national. So anyway, the fall classic started in 03. We then started the mod nationals two years later. Uh, obviously the sites race started in 07. Um, I took over the little dream, which, you know, was not my event, but I took that over in 2010 uh, border battle started. I think we're on year five or six. So I think 2016 that started last year. We jumped into the Wisconsin mod nationals because of COVID, but that has now turned into its own event coming up this year. <laughs> You know, there were some other events in there too. Uh, we we did a Badger State Nationals race at Cedar Lake 
one year. We did some WDRL late model races across Wisconsin one year. So we've, we've done a lot of different things, but man, from, from literally standing in a dirty pit area, just talking about life to turning it into what it is today. It's, it's pretty incredible. That's awesome. And, and of all people too, John Seitz, that's so cool. Right. And I, right. I still miss having that guy around. He was such a character. Like what's uh give me your best John Seitz story. Oh boy. Uh, <laughs> I am trying to think if there's any that the people out there should hear. Right. I mean, he, he and I had a lot of fun. I mean, we, we, we drank a lot of beer together and, and went up and down the road together a lot. And, Obviously he was, he was a great guy. He was a partier. He was a hard racer. He worked his tail off at his regular job, you know, just, just great family guy, like just a great guy all around as everybody knows. And, and boy, we had some fun. There were, there were days and weekends where groups of us, I don't think slept, you know, for, for 36, 48, 72 hours, maybe. <laughs> but, uh, no, I miss him every day too. And, and obviously I'm glad to be a, a small part of that sites race. Cause it's a, it's a near and dear event to me. Yeah, I know. It's such an excellent tribute and such a great event that you guys put on there. It's a pretty cool positive, uh, to come out of something terrible like that. So, right. And then, so with the marketing side of it as uh, FYE Motorsports, like how did that come about? Was that kind of organic or is that something else that, that came about through the sport? Yeah, that was, that was one of those things. Again, something that I didn't really try to start when it started. Um, uh, Katie Nelson, who is now Katie Vandekamp, who is Jason Vandekamp's wife, was doing graphic work. And she also works at all my FYE events. She was doing a bunch of graphic work back. I mean, it's got to be. 12, 13 years ago now. And Joel Kreiderman, fellow Canadian, had Mm -hmm. come to her and said, hey, I'm looking to get some kind of a marketing portfolio together for a potential sponsor. And so she called me and she's like, you know, uh, I can do the graphic part, but do you want to, you know, help do the, you know, the text and, and some of the things? I'm like, sure. So we put together a marketing portfolio for Joel Kreiderman. And I wish I remembered what year it, it probably was, like I said, 2000, six, seven, five, maybe it was quite a while ago and put that together. And I don't remember how it snowballed from there, but the minute the word got out that we did that, we we did 50 of them a year. I mean, it just turned into, man, this is cool. This, this actually helps people get sponsors. I'm like, well, it can, you know, I mean, if, if yeah. you sell yourself, right, it sure can. And so that's how it started. And then um, there was a need for hero cards. There was, you know, not people in my area that were doing either not doing them or not doing quality ones or whatever, obviously, you know, pretty simple to do. So we started doing a few of those and that has turned into several hundred a year. And then (laughs) the website design and social media management is relatively new. You know, that stuff is probably within the last five years or so we kind of started doing that. Um, again, there's a need, you know, race teams are notoriously bad and don't take offense to anybody, but race teams are notoriously bad for updating their social media. They are, they're terrible at it a lot of times. And there was a need for help. <laughs> and so I thought, well, you know what, let's, let's start and try to do a little bit of this for a couple guys. And I think we did three or four drivers, websites and social media content the first year. And now we're doing, you know, 30, 35 of each, which I don't really want to do a whole lot more because that's, that's about the cap for, for a guy like me, mm-hmm. you know, and, and then it started into some other things, you know, we do temporary tattoos, which are kind of neat. We do sponsor thank you photos for guys, you know, little stuff that the drivers can hand out to their fans and their, their kids and whatever. And, and then within the last three years, four years, we've become a, a dealer for K one race gear. So we design and, and get uh, driver suits and gloves and, and shoes and things like that done too. And, and that, that started with two or three. And I think we've done, 15 or 16 already this year it's that stuff <laughs> kind of explodes it is crazy it is crazy just a one-stop shop for pretty much anything uh, a racer needs <laughs> you know i i like to say that truthfully yeah i mean if if you need something done we can either do it or we've got a good connection that can can get it done for you you know that's cool chris you know that there's a, there's so much that you've done and where you've been uh i th- i can't remember the first time we officially met it'd probably be First time I heard you announce live was I think Red Ricoa Speedway for that one of those sh- uh, sh- was it an outlaw show or maybe one of the shows that Terry yeah Rumble had Race put or on. something yeah the mm-hmm, Rumble yeah. Race yeah um, and you have a very distinct voice uh, so that's that's a nice thing as well I know you've been doing it for a long time what kind of prep work do you put in before you 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 
announce a, a race program? Yeah, that's a good question. The, and, and that's a, that's a thing that people have told me for years and years that I should almost have a class or a school for new announcers, just because so many people jump into the, the, the seat, the announcer seat unprepared and you can, you can either enjoy the job or not. And if you're not prepared, you're probably not going to enjoy it because people aren't going to say nice things and you're just going to be, you know, you're, you're just not going to like it. And so I, I made a point and here's how this actually started. When I, when I started announcing in 1998, it was probably midsummer that year. And I had the wife of a racer who still races today. And I'm friends with them. Very good friends with them. A wife of a racer come up to me and say, Hey, you know what? this certain sponsor of ours has mentioned that you haven't said his name at all in the last month or, you know, however many races I had announced there. And I was just a 17, 18 year old kid. Like, man, I don't, do I have to talk about their sponsors? I just, (laughs) I want to get their names right. You know, I want, that's what I wanted. And, and literally from that day, a, a, a switch kind of flipped inside of me and was like, man, I do have the, the attention of all these thousands of people here or hundreds of people or however many were there that is my job. My job is to not only, you know, tell the fans who the drivers are and maybe where they're from, but it is to promote their sponsors because without their sponsors, they probably can't afford to race, you know? And so I do a ton of prep work. In fact, I've got a database in my computer that I spend hours and hours and hours on prior to an event, getting stats, getting drivers, getting wins, getting, you know, interesting tidbits that the crowd might like to know, things like that, because it it is important. I mean, as a person who has been out there, I mean, I sponsor, I think we sponsor almost 30 cars. I want my name heard when I'm sitting in the grandstands. So if I want other announcers to say my business name, I certainly want to be the guy who can say business names that are sponsoring other cars. So long answer to your story. I do a lot of prep work. There are some announcers that certainly probably do more than I do and and are better at it than I am. But I feel like if not if, but it's my job holding a microphone to be able to promote these racers and their sponsors so that they can continue on in the sport that I make a living at. Even with all that prep work, do you still feel nervous before you get started on a race? You know, sometimes, yeah, it, it really, it really depends. Here's, here's the perfect example. I was in Florida for the last month doing all the, the races that I do down there. And I was, I raced direct the first week at East Bay for the modifieds. Then I go up to North Florida and I race direct. Then I have a week off to go to Volusia and watch or Daytona and watch or do whatever I want for five or six days. And then I race direct the sprint cars at East Bay to wrap up my trip. Well, that week that I was scheduled to be off a touring series from Alabama called me and said, Hey, I heard you're in Florida. And I said, yeah, they're like, well, we're racing at East Bay this weekend. And our announcer just tested positive for COVID. (laughs) Any chance you would be interested in coming? And I was like, uh, I don't know anything about your series. I know about the series, but I don't know anything about your drivers, nothing. And oh, by the way, my hotel is two hours away and I'd have to do some, you know, logistical changes. So he called me back the next day and he's like, uh, we, we'd still love to have you. I'm like, okay, I'll do it. You know, it'll help you out, whatever. So I roll into East Bay on Thursday afternoon and there's 79 crate late models. There's not 20 cars. There's 79 of them. And the truth of the matter is, and if any of them listen to this, I apologize, but I knew about a dozen of them and that's it. And so, so was I nervous that night? Yes, because, you know, now everything's live on the internet. So there's, you know, tens of thousands of people sometimes watching online and listening to you. And I just, I don't like to be the guy that's not prepared and and I feel like it went fine and, and everything was good, but I feel like I wish I would have been a little more prepared and I could have been if I'd have known a little earlier. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. That's wild. Is has there been any memorable moments that you've had announcing where you may have made a it, maybe a large faux pas or something and kind of regretted it and maybe thought about it over a period of time and and maybe something that you had to you know rectify later on? Um, you know, I don't know. I, I can think of two things, sort of. I don't think they were major, but I, I can think of two things. One time, I was announcing a race in uh, Casson, Minnesota. And 
two drivers got together on the back stretch and one of them ended up on one wheel and thankfully came back down on all fours instead of going upside down. And I said something like that driver's lucky that he didn't get upside down, meaning thankfully he came back on all four wheels. Well, his wife didn't hear it that way. His wife came up to the announcer's tower hollering and screaming, saying, you said you wished he would have got upside down. I'm like, no, 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 that didn't happen. Didn't happen. So I remember that. And then another time, um, I am a, I'm a pretty big perfectionist and everybody that knows me knows that. And one of my favorite things to do each year is our, our lights out driver introduction for the USA nationals at Cedar Lake. I, I started that years and years ago and, and it's just one of my favorite things and everybody in the place, you know, 10,000 people are listening to every word and, and watching these guys come out under spotlights and smoke and, and craziness. And I remember calling a guy the wrong name as he was introduced one time. This is 15 years ago, like a long, long time ago. And I, I stumbled and fixed it right away, but I still felt terrible about it just internally. Cause I don't like making those kind of mistakes. Oh man. It's uh yeah, that, that's not the mistake you want to make. Right. Right. Oh right. man. But, but um, you, you learn from those things and, and you just, you know, I'd be interested to know how many words a night, myself or any other announcer says over a PA system throughout the course of the night, you know, you say thousands and thousands of thousands of words. I guess there's going to be a time or two. You're going to make a mistake, right? Yeah, absolutely. No, no disagreeing there. I mean, I've done it myself, uh, over a period of time and there's nothing, there's nothing easy about it. I think the only thing you run into is you kind of, you do get comfortable. I think it's with anything you do get comfortable over time during an event, uh, especially even if whether you're prepared or not, it takes very little time, I guess, to start getting comfortable. Maybe it's like the five or 10 minutes at the most. And if you're at a two or three hour program, you know, you have lots of time to, to really get adjusted to the whole thing as well. And, you know, you mentioned about making little mistakes here or there. I know sometimes you can get babbling away about all sorts of stuff and then forget even where you are because you get so engaged <laughs> right. in what you're saying. Right. right. Um, on the marketing side of things though, how did you determine, I mean, I know, you know, you had an idea in terms of, you know, race teams having a hard time promoting themselves in terms of marketing, all that. But when you started adding different things, like how did you figure that those are things they needed? Was it more hearsay or conversations? Was it surveys? Was it research or was it just, Hey, let's offer this and see what's going to happen? I think a little of all of those things combined, truthfully, you know, the, the portfolio thing I kind of touched on and, and the hero card thing that, that came next, like I said, just because there, there was a need. I had, had several people ask and then it turned into, everybody asking. And then from there, you know, either listening to what guys talk about in the pits or when you're just hanging out with them that they can't find somebody to do a website for them, or they can't find somebody to do their t-shirts or they can't find, you know, whatever it may be. And so anytime I'd hear those things, I'd kind of do a little research and talk to some people and, you know, basically determine if it was worthwhile to do, you know, if we could come out and help some race teams and not overcharge them, but still make a little bit of money to make it worth our time. Let's do it. You know, the, the marketing portfolio thing is a perfect example. Um, there's, there's a company in, in North Carolina that does some portfolios right now, relatively new company, and they are charging more than double what we charge. And, 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 and that's fine. And, and they've got their clients, we've got ours and, and, and that's great. But my point when starting this was, I want to make sure the racers aren't outpriced, right? Like we want to make sure that they can afford this and then in turn can go out and get some sponsors to keep them on the racetrack. But at the same time, we can't do it for free, right? You're putting a lot of time and effort and you need to, you need to get paid for your time and, and talents or whatever. So, you know, we, we've basically just kind of kept with what we've done these last, you know, five or six years. We haven't really changed much other than the, the driver suit thing and, and that somebody had, asked if I was interested in becoming a dealer. I'm like, sure. You know, why not? What, what, what more do I need to do? You know, jump into something else. But, (laughs) but truthfully, that's where it comes from. It comes from drivers either, either saying, Hey, can you do this? Or, Hey, do you know somebody who can do this? Or, Hey, I can't find anybody to do it. What do I do? You know, Hmm. when it comes to operating an event, do you want to just go through some detail in terms of on an annual basis, what it takes to get prepared for like the fall classic, for example, what are the steps that you take? What kind of meetings do you have? Uh, how do you determine like purse and, and, and so on? Yeah, it's um, you know, when let's use the fall classic, for example, like you said, you know, that's an October event. 
So within two weeks of that event being done, I start on the next year. And that might sound crazy to some people because I know some people don't do that, but literally within, you know, by the end of October, we have already, we being me and my FYE team and me and Nate and the Ogilvy team, because that's where we hold the event, have already conversated several times about, okay, obviously dates for next year. Uh, what should, you know, what should the format look like? Should we, should we change it? Should we keep it the same? I'm one of those guys that I keep a pretty good notebook on everything that goes very well at our events and things that don't, and maybe things we could tweak to make it better for, you know, for the overall event. So before that loses my mind, you know, leaves my mind, I want to talk about it. So within a couple of weeks, we start talking about it. And then, you know, we decide what dates we're doing. And, you know, for, for Wissota races, it's pretty simple. It's the same, you know, same dates every year for the most part, depending how the calendar falls. But, um, you know, and then throughout the winter, you know, Nate and I will talk, you know, Nate and I talk weekly anyway, just, you know, catch up, see what's going on. But, you know, we'll talk a little bit about the event, you know, should we, should we think about this, that, and the other thing? And then what I'll do is probably, well, probably next week already, because it's March 1st, I will start putting together marketing timelines for, for all of my events. Our first FYE event is Memorial Day weekend this coming year. So, you know, by March 1st, everybody knows about it because we've put, you know, we put a press release out in the fall and we do a few little teaser things here. But um, March 1st-ish is when we'll start creating event flyers, posters, social media events, ads, those kind of things. That way, everybody's got a good couple of months to remember about it, buy tickets, reserve camping, whatever they may need to do to travel to and from the uh, the event. And then, you know, as weeks lead up to the event, there's a ton that goes into it, right? I mean, not only getting staff, deciding what the purse is, like you said, you know, that's not an easy thing. You know, purse versus entry fees versus, you know, what, not overcharging guys, but also making sure you can pay the bills at the end of the weekend. You know, pretty much every one of our events is at the end of the weekend, it's about a hundred thousand dollar event, you know, give or take five or so grand here. There's a hundred thousand dollars that go out the door on every one of these events. And that, that is purse, that is advertising, that is staffing, that is insurance, that is, you know, everything, everything, you know, between a hundred and 110,000 probably. So it's not that easy to just say, oh, let's do this. Hopefully we bring in 106,000 if we're going to pay out 105,000, you know? <laughs> so there, there's a lot of those things. And then of course, you know, the weeks leading up, we do a ton of social media advertising. We do a lot of different other advertising as well, making sure, you know, the facility is ready to go. And, and I'm really lucky. I mean, I've got amazing partners, you know, the Nate and the Wagamans at Ogilvy are fantastic to work with. They've got an amazing facility. They've been, they've been awesome ever since we moved our event there. Uh, Joe and everybody at Gondic Law and Superior, which we've got three events at this coming year. Um, they're fantastic to work with as well. You know, of course the sites race, you know, I don't want to say that runs itself cause it certainly doesn't, but we've gotten such a good rhythm at that sites race where, where, you know, Darren and everybody there and, and Brad and, and Bob and everybody, we, we work so well together at that event, the little dream, you know, we come in, bring all our people into the little dream and just hammer that thing out. We've got a great relationship with, with Dave and, and everybody at Rice Lake too. So, you know, it's, it's pretty neat when you can kind of just come into a facility and do your thing and not have to worry about staff or other people having other opinions, or, you know, you've got it all worked out prior to the start of the event. And the major thing you need to worry about at that point is weather, right? I mean, if, if weather cooperates, life is good. If weather doesn't cooperate, it creates a whole nother level of stress that I don't want to deal with. I can help it. <laughs> and I was going to ask, I was going to ask that, that question next, like what are, and I knew obviously weather's a big one, but do you have any other worries on race day or, or even not even leading up to the event, but on race day itself, are there things that, that worry you throughout an event that might, uh, that affect you maybe in some way? Yeah, definitely. I mean, weather being number one, certainly, you know, I mean, it, there, there is nothing that will make you turn from making $10,000 to losing $30,000 than a bad weather forecast or a rainstorm at a bad time. You know, I mean, weather, weather will kill a guy and, and, it's amazing I'm still involved in the sport because the first fall classic I ever had championship Saturday night rained out. We had to race, we had to race on Sunday afternoon to, for the first event I ever promoted by myself. And I don't know if I should have taken the hint that year and been just like, Nope, this isn't for me <laughs> or what, but you know, we've had some terrible weather. We've canceled several fall classics because of snow. We've canceled the last three years in a row. The Can-Am clash in superior has not happened because of snow. 
you know, we've had some, some major weather situations come through storms and tornadoes and, and things like that, where we've had to postpone or cancel events and it, it makes it really tough. But other than weather on race day, you know, obviously paying the bills is, is number two, probably number one a, because if for some reason you don't have the crowd and, or the, the car count and people in the pits come and support your event, you're not gonna be able to pay the bills and that's going to be really difficult. So that always concerns me until the checkered flag flies each night. And I have an idea how many people are there. Um, you know, racetrack itself, you obviously want to have a nice, good racy racetrack. So that's always on my mind. And again, I'm super lucky with the tracks we run events at. They have great track prep people. And uh, usually that's never a concern, but it's always on your mind, you know, wanting to make sure the track is in great shape. And, and then obviously treating everybody fair and making sure the calls are all, are all up to par, right? I mean, you, you never want, you never want a guy to get a bad call. Sometimes they're going to, right? It's just everybody's human. And sometimes one official sees it different than another official or, or point of view is, is different from one side of the track to the other, but you know, always, always, always making sure we do our damnedest to make sure everybody's treated really fair. Well, the nice benefit of having your first event being rained out on championship night is that it probably allows you to think about how do you plan for such events in the future, like a contingency type of deal. If something were to happen, if you got rained out one day or two days, is that something you still walk into and just say, okay, well, if, if it's a three day show or whatever, and one gets rained out, what's the plan and how do we do these? Oh, things? no question. No question. There are conversations several weeks out before each event we do saying, okay, if the first day rains out, what do we do? If the second day rains out, what do we do? You know, what's our, you know, Sunday rain date plan. We had to race the mod nationals one year on a Monday afternoon because <laughs> we had raced it on Saturday, Sunday. I believe it was the 4th of July, or maybe it was the 3rd of July, but it was a holiday basically for most people here. So it actually worked okay, but I, I don't want to put a $50,000 purse on the line on a Monday afternoon. That's terrible, you know, <laughs> but, um, but so yes, to answer your question, we, we have contingency plans uh, in place prior to every event, just in case the weather does kind of, kind of ruin it for us. When it comes to, to planning your dates, you know, once upon a time, you know, running like a Wednesday, Thursday or a Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday was something that was somewhat still regular um, or happen more often. What do you think is the biggest reason for the change to more of the Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday type thing, and no more of the Monday, Tuesday, or even the Wednesday stuff? Yeah, I think, you know, obviously the easy answer is it's much harder to get the working family to come out on a weekday. You know, moms and dads have to work. Kids might have to go to school depending on the same time of year. So it's much easier for somebody to come out on a Saturday when typically a lot of people have Saturdays and Sundays off, you know? Um, but I will say, I think that trend is changing a little bit with pay-per-view now and with all these different streaming options, I think a person actually could probably do very well on a Tuesday or a Wednesday because I think your pay-per-view numbers could be, could be much higher because there's much less competition those days of the week. And that's an interesting, uh, thing because COVID has really helped push the pay-per-view side of things, even up here in our little region in, in Northwestern Ontario and in Manitoba here, um, you know, we're not getting huge, you know, 500, 600 people, but, you know, especially for some of the bigger events happening, you know, we're seeing people who are able to get on who live in BC or Southern Ontario, who maybe used to go to the racetrack years ago. And, and it was all kind of hearsay or results type thing on the internet. And now they have the opportunity to be able to access to it. So, you know, it's kind of a benefit for both people who are far away or can't make it uh, or even close by that can't make it. That's really added to the dynamic of, of attendance in, in the sport. Yeah, it really has. I mean, in 2020, our pay-per-view numbers were the biggest they've ever been. And that's exactly why, you know, the, the sites race pay-per-view numbers were giant because no Canadians could cross. Same thing with Superior. You know, we, we've got a ton of, of Thunder Bay people that come to those Superior events and they couldn't come this year. So our pay-per-view numbers were really big. Two things on pay-per-view quick. Um, you know, our little dream race that we do at Rice Lake, that's on a Tuesday night in August. And that is the single biggest pay-per-view event I do every year. I mean, it's, it's, it's a neat event. It's a unique event and there's no competition on a Tuesday night. You know, people just, just jump on and watch it. And then, and then the other thing with pay-per-view, you know, we, we have gotten to the point where we want things instantly, right? So if, if you want results or you want to know how your sponsored driver or your husband or your wife or whoever might be racing is doing, you can literally sit on your couch and watch it most of the time. You know, we are, our, our FY watch FYE TV platform 
started with one event in 2016 and we literally have exactly 100 events on the schedule for 2021. Like it is, it is exploded. It's crazy. So people want it, you know, it's a, it's a, people love the sport, but sometimes people just physically can't get to the racetrack and, and we're going to bring them another avenue to be able to watch. And, and that's, I mean, we all know how much better racing is in person oh, yeah. than it is on TV. You know, like the, the majority of people, I mean, there are people out there who go like, well, if it's on pay-per-view, I'll never have to go to another race in, in, in person again. But there, that's such a small, minute number of people, the amount of people I wouldn't even generally worry right. about. Um, but it, it's nice to have the access, that secondary access to the sport. Because, you know, those people that can't make it, or maybe they have a friend and they go, hey, you know what? Like, why don't you try the pay-per-view if it's too much of a hassle to come to the racetrack, see what you think of it on pay-per-view, and I'll show you what it's like in person next yeah. time. You might gain a fan Absolutely. even that way just through adverti- digital advertising. Well, here's the here's the perfect situation. East Bay in Tampa ran the Lucas Oil Series a couple weeks ago. Saturday, and, and that whole entire week was free, mind you, on Lucas Oil Facebook page, Mav TV Plus Facebook page. They ran those events for free. It was a live stream for free. Anybody in the world could watch it. But East Bay on championship Saturday night had an all-time record attendance. <laughs> so all these people still came to the racetrack because you're 100% right. I'd much rather go in person than watch it on TV. But if I can't go, I have a chance to watch it. Absolutely. Hey, uh, I do want to circle back on uh, a couple things. One real quick is just my buddy Joel Kreiderman up in Thunder Bay. Just a funny yeah. story with him. When I, uh, I went out to Thunder Bay to go to university and, you know, I was just first time really moving away from home and, I uh, get to town and I'm, you know, pretty uh, homesick for racing, really. And they, they don't have a track there still, or they, they didn't at that time. So I just like literally looked up Joel Kreiderman and phone him was like, hey, I'm a racer from Winnipeg. Can I come hang out at your shop? <laughs> phone the guy up. And he's kind of, at first he's kind of like, hey, like, what do you need? Or like, who are you? Like, why? Eventually we just hung around for a while and drank enough beer together that uh, it turns out he's just a, a great dude. And, uh, it was really, really cool standing in his shop, looking up at the wall. He's got like over a dozen of these big $10,000 checks from all kinds. He's won rumble races, he's won big shows at uh, Cedar Lake and all over the place. And he's a guy who, you know, he used to do this and make money at it. Yep. And uh, it got to the point for him where he was not only not making money at it, he was losing quite a bit and he, he decided to retire. But, uh, you know, we watched that the sport change so much in that time. Like, what uh, what's your opinion on, on the health of the sport and everything where it's at right now? Yeah, I, I can see both positives and negatives of it. You know, I, I will say this, you know, like I said, East Bay's crowds were giant. Volusia's crowds were giant. There are, there are a lot of fans out there that love the sport. Car counts were enormous in Florida. Like I said, there was nearly 80 crate late models, 80 super late models. You know, they had 100, I think they had 106 modifieds at Volusia overall throughout the week. Just really good car counts. The Arizona, the IMCA stuff in Arizona, their car counts are huge over the winter. I think special events are doing very well and are going to continue to do very well. Um, I think regular Friday, Saturday, Sunday night racing I think the promoters who are successful at it have that extra oomph. And I don't know what I mean by that other than it's not just a regular Friday night. You know, they're doing something a little bit extra for the fans or they've added a touring group or they've added, you know, some kind of a benefit for the fans to come. I, I just, I know as a, as a guy who's been around, I mean, I, I prided myself on going to at least a hundred races for 20 years in a row. And I did that from 2000, 2019, I went to over a hundred a year. And, and the reason I did that is, is I wanted to see what worked and what didn't work at all these different tracks around the country. You know, I, I think that I learned something almost every time I go to a racetrack, whether it's positive or negative, I learned something. Oh, I should do that. Or Ooh, never do that again. You know? So, so I think a regular night, sometimes fans just get burned out a little bit because it's like, oh, that's the exact same thing I saw last Friday night or whatever. So I think, you know, a little piece of advice for a regular, you know, weekly promoter is spice it up somehow, whether it's just, you know, dotting your schedule with some different specials or have some, you know, two for one giveaways, or maybe do something where fans can enter drawings to win who cares what, you know, just things. people like free stuff. Mm-hmm. So I think, I think the overall health of the sport is, is very good, but I do, I do think it's getting ridiculously expensive in some areas where it is pricing some people out for sure. 
Well, in my day, we called those gimmicks. <laughs> That's right. And, and, and you know, it's funny you use that word because I am not a gimmick guy at all. My events, you know, our FYE events are events. We want people to come, enjoy themselves, have fun from the minute they're there to the minute they leave and see some good racing, right? But I've never been a guy that's done the gimmicks. However, these gimmick events make a lot of money. You know, I mean, Cedar Lakes mm. school bus race is one of their biggest mm-hmm. profitable events of the year. <laughs> you know, some of these tracks that do that do demo derbies and monster truck shows and monster truck shows around the country are huge right now. You know, so so the gimmicks do work. And I think there's there's a, a need and kind of a niche all over the place for those kind of things. And I don't think that we should look at the word gimmick as being in, in the context that we're looking at as necessarily a bad thing. Right. There's value to be to be taken from it. And I, th- I think it's just, it's the active involvement of a tracker promoter that, that these things can come from that really just add a little bit of spice for the local fan. It doesn't really, like you said, it doesn't really matter what it is per se, as long as it's just a nice little extra thing that maybe only happens once or twice a year, but you have multiple different items that brings in different sorts of people to that event. Absolutely right. Couldn't agree more. Yeah. So to bring it all back in uh, full circle here, the one thing we didn't talk about was your, your track promoting. So you've been a track promoter at a couple different places over the years, and that's how you've wound up in New Mexico. Tell us a bit about that. Yeah. So um, first, first track that I jumped into promoting was now called Gonda Claw Speedway, but it was Superior Speedway back then in Superior. And I had announced there for several years prior to and their, their full-time promoter, which was hired by their fair board, was, I don't know if he retired. I can't remember the situation. He moved or he retired. And we were just talking one day and they asked if I'd be interested. And I was like, man, I've never done anything like this before. But, you know, if you people as the people on the board are willing to help me along, let's give it a shot. And so I promoted twice, two different times for like three years one time. And then I went away and two or three years another time at Superior. And that led to, you know, Fox Ridge, which is now not there anymore. That track in Arcadia, Wisconsin, I promoted that for several years. Uh, St. Croix Speedway, which was called Capella Speedway for a couple of years. I was hired there for several years. And then uh, Granite City Speedway, which is in St. Cloud, uh, when that was purchased by, well, now the, the ex-owners, because there's a brand new owner this year, but the group that bought it, um, called me up right away and said, Hey, we hear you're the guy. I'm like, well, I don't know if that's true, but the positive part is I live in St. Cloud, which is six miles from the racetrack. So yeah, let's meet. <laughs> so we had a meeting and and I took that job and promoted that for four years. And then, um, they were a Sunday night racetrack and they switched to Friday nights. And I had a conflict on Friday cause I was, I was the race director at Superior and, and I didn't want to give that up. And so we, for one year, I said, you know what? I'll stay here one year. I'll give up Superior for one year and see. And then at the end of that year, I just knew that I wanted to be at Superior. It was just, it was my home. And so I gave up the Granite City thing. And then they ended up hiring someone else. And then they closed last year. And now uh, a new group has bought it. And actually, uh, they've got huge things planned there for 2021. It should be a pretty fun year for those guys there. Uh, James is a is a good guy, loves racing, and and he's got a lot of great ideas. So that should they should see a pretty good year there. But then, yeah. So the New Mexico thing, um, I would fly down here twice a year to announce the two big modified races that the Southern New Mexico Speedway had. They had a winter meltdown event in March and a fall nationals event in October. And I'm not sure how I got hired the first year to that even because that's a long time ago. But I would come and I'd fly in twice, you know, twice a year, and I did it for boy, 15 years, I bet. I mean, I've been 15, maybe more than that. And several different times throughout the last seven or eight years, the the owner of that place, name is Royal Jones, who also races. Um, he said, man, you ought to move here. You could move here and run. And at that time it was two tracks. He had a track in El Paso and a track in Las Cruces. I'm like, nope, I am not moving to the desert and I'm just not doing it. And so... <laughs> Uh, you know, he'd ask me once a year, you know, just kind of, Hey, don't forget, you, know, you should move here. Well, then he, they closed El Paso and then he started building this brand new track. And in 2019, in June, the brand new track, which is called Vado Speedway Park opened. And I flew there in October of 2019 to announce their race. Like I always had. And he took me to lunch one day and said, here's the deal. Like, this is the time I know you don't like your job, which he didn't know, (laughs) but he's like, I know you don't like your job. It's a, it's a brand new $7 million facility. 
you got to come and run it. And I was like, dude, I just, I've lived in the Midwest my whole life, right? I had a, I had a job that I was very comfortable in. All my FYE events are there. My family's all, everybody's there. So I flew home and I thought about it and I bounced it off my, you know, five or six people in my inner circle. And everybody's like, dude, I think you got to give it a shot. I mean, I think, I think you got to try it. So then I flew back down in January and, um, signed a contract, bought a house <laughs> and, uh, then started in February of last year. So yeah, it's a, it's, it's a neat story. I mean, Royal and I have been friends for a long time and it's, it's pretty cool that he took a chance on a, on a guy from Minnesota, but, um, so far it's other than us not being open because of COVID this past year, uh, it's been a great move. You know, people here are great. I've been welcomed as basically part of the family. So it's pretty cool. Yeah. Well, I think that, that, uh, the weather alone is definitely something you could get used to coming from Minnesota. So that certainly can't hurt. No question. No question there. <laughs> One more thing I wanted to ask you about was uh, we got to get a little bit of dirt on our buddy Scott Greer being, uh, you know, one of your favorite Canadians, I'm sure. Uh, How did you guys get hooked up? Because you've been a sponsor of his for a long time. You know what? That's another crazy story. So um, I I hope I have these years right because they're in my brain and I might be off a year. But in 2000, I'm going to say seven, I'm pretty sure it was 2007 at the Fall Classic at Viking. He flipped off turn three I was into there. the trees. Okay. I, mean, I think it was 20, 2007. It might've been six, but I think it was seven. He flipped off turn three into the trees. And I was like, oh my gosh, that guy just died. Yeah, he, like, he, he did he almost literally die. flipped into the yeah. trees. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so I, we red flagged the thing and I went over there to make sure he was okay. And I don't know that I'd ever even met him before. I may had in passing, but, um, <laughs> but uh, it, anyway, we got to talking and, and, you know, we, we, got to be friends and kind of started hanging out a little bit. And I started sponsoring him the next year, which was either 07 or 08. And, and basically, you know, just every chance, you know, we got to get together, which was only a couple times a year, you know, he was racing a late model then. So it was really just the fall classic for those first couple of years until the sites race started. And then when he jumped into a mod, he started being able to come to the mod nationals and, you know, the border battle and some other events that we have. So we really only see each other a couple times a year, and, um, we just, we get along. We, we, I think we think the same way, you know, we're both, we're both big race fans, of course, but we, uh, we just have a lot of fun, you know, they're, his whole family is great. You know, his mom and dad, oh, they're the best. And, and yeah. they, they are, they're, they're fantastic people. And, and we treat each other like family. I mean, they, they would take me in if I needed anything. I know that. And we would do the same for, for them for sure. And so we just kind of started that way. It, it started as a real small, you know, Hey, you should. I kind of feel bad that you wrecked your race car at my event. Why don't you put my logo on your car and we'll do something? You know, that's kind of how it started, I think. And, uh, and, and then from there, it's just, it's turned into a really great friendship. I mean, we, we obviously didn't get to see each other at all in 2020 with COVID because he wasn't able to come down into the States. But uh, yeah, I think 14, this will be the 14th or 15th year we've, we've sponsored his race car. So cool. it's been a, he's, he's been a long time, long, long, long time, uh, a supporter of our events. And in fact, he, he still to this day is the only driver that has been at every single fall classic. There's not one other driver that's been to every single one. And uh, obviously COVID did what COVID did in October. So we put a little asterisk by 2020 cause he would have been there if he could have been, but um, yeah, so that's really cool. You know, I was in his wedding, you know, when him and Laura got married, I went up to Winnipeg and was in the wedding. <laughs> uh, any chance we get an opportunity to go have steak together, you know, he's a big steak lover. I'm a big steak lover. Um, he, he cooks it wrong. They do theirs medium, medium rare. And I can't stand that. I'm a medium well guy. So we, <laughs> we do kind of fight over that a little bit, but, uh, but man, it's just, uh, they're super, super good people. And, and that's who I want to be aligned with. Like I, I don't care if my logo is on a, you know, a, a Donnie shots type car that wins a hundred races a year. I want my logo on a guy, a guy's race car who is super cool down to earth and we can be really good friends. That's what I want. That's awesome. Yeah. It's uh, it, it's been pretty fun. One, one thing, one other thing I do, I do want to say, as long as we're talking, there was one year, this is how dedicated of a guy he is. There was one year. And again, I can't remember the year, but he broke his arm in a, in a race in Jamestown in North Dakota in, I don't know if it was May or June. And so instead of bringing his car to the mod nationals, cause he was one of my guys, right? He kind of, that was the deal. You got to come to our events and he'd never missed one instead of bringing his car. Cause he couldn't race. <laughs> they put an inflatable pool in the trailer and they came to the event and unloaded this inflatable pool and just had a, had a hell of a time that weekend. So it's, uh, <laughs> it's, uh, 
it's a pretty fun, uh, pretty fun group to be around. I really like those guys. Uh, that's great. Yeah. The, uh, the after parties at the FYE races are always a pretty good time <laughs> from what we can remember of them anyway, at least until we tear into the jungle juice a little bit too much, but <laughs> oh. oh man, boy, that, that got some people in some trouble. I think that, uh, that I think people were calling it FYE Kool-Aid in fact <laughs> is what they were, they were starting to call that. That was, that was a crazy concoction that I don't even know where that started. That started with just, you know, mixing some stuff and it turned into kind of a perfected cocktail and we were we were pouring it out of gas cans into people's glasses those first couple of years like it was it was pretty wild we definitely had some fun with that oh man i was at the fall classic one time and we got into uh somebody started pouring around like there was absinthe going around and i've never done any hallucinogenic drugs at this point in my life so <laughs> i i have a little bit of this with some of the jungle juice and it's all it's all good we're we're chatting and then i'm talking to my buddy about whatever and I, I, I say his name and I look over at him, say, hey, yeah, right, right, Jesse. And he looks at me and then his face like changed and it wasn't Jesse. I was talking to some guy. I didn't know who it was like at all. <laughs> I freaked out. <laughs> and then, but like, you know, kept it together. And then it happened again, like 10 minutes later. I was like, okay, I got to go to bed. And I just called it a night. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like that absinthe was smuggled across the Canadian border. I don't think that originated in the United States. I think somebody <laughs> from your country brought it to ours. Cause I also remember that weekend. <laughs> and, uh, and yeah, that was, uh, that was a wild time there. Uh-huh. Yeah. Well, good times. Good times. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Well, Chris, thanks so much for uh, being on the podcast. It was very interesting. Appreciate all your insights and all your experience. Uh, it was really good, and hopefully we'll have you on again sometime in the near future. Yeah, absolutely. I appreciate you guys asking. This was a good time. Yeah, for sure. I uh, I can't wait to get myself back into a uh, a class where I can come down and, uh, and race some of these FYE events. So hopefully in the near future we can make that happen. That sounds great. Yeah, make it happen. You bet. And thank you to each and every one of you for listening in. We appreciate you all, and we'll catch you next time on Bench Racing Radio. Cheers. Thanks for listening to Bench Racing Radio. Like and follow our social media handles. Facebook at Bench Racing Radio. Twitter at Bench Racing Rat 1. Or Instagram at Bench Racing Radio.